They can have up to 500 or more roaming loose adult large breed dogs roaming around their areas. These isolated areas that don't have access to vet care, uh, nor do they have access to rescue resources. Um, they once or twice a year go around to the entire community and usually shoot every dog um, or every roaming dog without a collar. Hello, and welcome to Puppy Scammers, a podcast with an ugly name, but a beautiful purpose. This is episode six, The Honorable. In this episode, we talk to Katie Powell, the founder of Save a Dog Network, a Winnipeg-based nonprofit organization that assists with dog control within First Nation communities in Northern Manitoba. Save a Dog Network has been rescuing and relocating dogs throughout Canada. And one of these locations is the Niagara SPCA. Also joining us on the podcast is Tammy Gabbery, Tammy is the pet care manager at the Welland and District Humane Society. She has been working alongside Katie in this mission of rescuing and rehoming dogs from Manitoba to Ontario. Let's do this. First off, thank you both for joining us today on the podcast. Katie, can you give us an overview on the Save a Dog Network? Uh, perhaps talk about um, how and why you started it. Uh, sure, so I was a paramedic for 11 years. Um, and I started fostering dogs through a local rescue here. I didn't really realize that there was that many strays, um, and then I ended up rescuing a dog named Dooley. That's where it kind of started. Um, the rescue didn't have enough money to save him, so my family and I ended up fundraising $12,000 to save his life, and he became my best friend for seven years. Um, after that, I just started absorbing myself into um, these isolated communities and realizing that there was a bigger problem that there was nobody really helping. So we decided to form Save a Dog Network. And so how do you, how do you form something like that? And because it's obviously grown since, and what year did you start it? Uh, I started that in 2013. Uh, it did start off very small. Uh, we actually tried to start a little website to help rescues connect with different volunteers. Um, it started off very basic, just supplying some food and um, collars and leashes. I then ended up getting hooked up with some pretty cool veterinarians that were willing to donate some time, and that morphed into us now having a full um, hospital that we can bring into these First Nation communities and do spay and neuter clinics uh, directly in the community. So that was, two, so you said 2013? 13, yes. That's when you started it, okay. And then, so do you, are you still a paramedic now? I am not. I, I guess, retired last year, um, so I can focus on providing veterinary care to the North full-time. How many dogs do you think uh, you see, like, annually? So I guess some numbers would be, like, we've done 35 spay and neuter clinics in the last five years, where we fixed over 900 owned animals that live in these First Nation communities. Um, our team has rescued over 7,000 dogs and puppies, um, many that survived parvo, hit by cars, distemper, uh, different parasites like worms and lice, as well as many dog attacks and things like that. Um, so that's kind of our numbers for how many animals we were able to bring in. Um, we average about 50 to 60 dogs a month that we um, 
we, we rescue that are unwanted or injured in the community. Um, but I get about 250 requests um, a month of unwanted animals. I'm just not able to fill every request. So what's the biggest issue um, with this area um, as far as why there are so many strays or so many dogs um, unwanted? So we have 63 First Nations in Manitoba. About half of them are in the north uh, that are um, either extremely isolated fly-ins um, as well as on islands that don't actually have even airports. Um, so the biggest problem that we have is the lack of veterinary care for owned animals, which results in unnecessary suffering and overbreeding. So if dogs don't have access to the vet to be spay and neutered, uh, they have two or three litters a year. Um, because they're on small islands, they um, reproduce at rapid rates. And then if animals are injured, the unnecessary suffering happens because these owners are not able to bring their dogs or cats uh, to the vet. So they tend to do home treatments, um, which sometimes is detrimental, um, as well as um, injuries do often left um, that are left that um, they'll pass away from eventually. Right. So I'm, I'm sure you're aware by now that I actually got one of these puppies from that area. And when I was doing some research, at, and I went to the Facebook on the Save a Dog Network Facebook page, I actually think I found a picture of, I think it was, <laughs> of, of this, of our dog, Nora. So I thought it was, it was pretty, pretty neat to see that, that this was her home, obviously, before her home that she's in now. Um, and then also um, the, SPC, the Niagara SPCA, uh, Tammy, who is also on the podcast. Hello, Tammy. Hello. Give us a little bit of background about your work, how you came in contact with uh, the Save a Dog Network uh, initiative. Um, it kind of came about by chance um, connecting with Katie. It was um, another rescue group here in the Niagara region that had already started working with her and flying um, a few pups in at a time. And uh, they put me in touch with Katie. And so we we uh, did our first uh flight in probably two years ago I think it has been now that we um, started this um, relationship and then it's kind of just grown from there after getting to know Katie more and seeing all the amazing work that she has done and is doing and I, I wanted to do more so um, that's kind of how we have uh, grown and developed a relationship uh, from two years ago. And if you could guess over the two years, or maybe you even know this number, do you know how many trips you've made and how many dogs you've brought to uh, back to Niagara with you? Do you know that? Uh, this year is the first year that we've actually done trips out there. So we oh, worked okay. together in uh, February, um, end of February, beginning of March, which was the, the largest uh, joint collaboration that we had done with Save a Dog. And we... Um, we, we transferred 105 dogs from Northern Manitoba communities with Katie's uh, team who we, uh, it, it was a large scale project and Katie is the one that organized it all and had all her volunteers and all her crew and um, everything that we did on the ground was because of Katie and her team. So uh, there were three communities that were visited during the time that we were there, which was just a short period of time, but we managed to bring back 105 dogs and some cats in that mix as well uh, back to Southern Ontario with us. 
So that's pretty incredible. How do you facilitate 105 dogs? Like, A, how do you get them all together? And then how do you facilitate the transfer from, you know, Manitoba to Ontario? Well, I'm used to, you know, two-day spay and neuter clinic seeing on average between about 80 and 150 animals. But those are normally owned animals that we spay and neuter or vaccinate. Um, so I just had to adjust my sales a little bit um, and focus on the, the strays. Uh, so what we did is we had a hub in Thompson where we had multiple teams going to different communities on the same day and then brought all the animals back to Thompson where we had a community center set up and we were able to properly triage the, the dogs. Um, we actually had two veterinarians fly in from Winnipeg um, and donate their time to properly vet the animals before they, they got on a plane and uh, started off their journey down to, to Toronto. Um, so it was a, a, a large collaborative of local rescues, uh, about 15 volunteers, um, and then just um, no sleep. And, um, <laughs> you know, it, but it was fabulous. We, we had a blast. And it was nice because Tammy um, and one of her volunteers were able to see where these dogs come from. Um, because if you've never been up north, you really don't know what it's like to live in these areas. Um, so it was nice where Tammy's crew, well, Tammy and crew, uh, were able to kind of see um, what we live with every day. So it was it was a wonderful time. I would imagine, especially now during this time, it would be very difficult for these, if the strays especially, to be nourished and, uh, you know, reasonably safe, right? Yeah, especially and I think that's the, the biggest problem with COVID right now is um, there's limited flights. So let's say you have a, a, an isolated community that has three flights a week at the best of times. Um, they have smaller planes, so that might be now down to one or two times a week and a smaller plane. So the amount of dogs that we can get out, um, which means our team just has to work 10 times harder to, to get these dogs safe. Um, but surprisingly, we're still able to bring 50 or 60 a month in uh, COVID or not. We just had to um, adjust a little bit and make sure that our volunteers are staying safe. Um, and then the biggest problem, obviously, is we can't get up to do spay and neuter clinics right now. So we've been um, just um, either driving them in for communities that are around Winnipeg or just providing um, remote uh, veterinary care until we can get back up north. So how big is the team that you've mentioned and people that work alongside you and as well as volunteers? So how many people does it take to ship 105 puppies and, and dogs to, uh, out, of, out of your province? Um, well, like Tammy said, the logistics and all the planning, social media appointments, everything like that, I did by myself. And Whoa. then on average, I have between 10 and 50 volunteers um, that all have different uh, jobs, whether it be gathering supplies, helping us fundraise, uh, temporary fostering, as well as I have a, a small crew that um, are trusted to actually go into these um, isolated areas and work directly um, with the chief and councils as well as community members. Um, unfortunately, that job isn't for everyone, so our, our circle is quite uh, small. Um, but uh, And then Tammy's team is, is the other hand that makes this work um and Tammy I guess you can tell about your team uh yeah so um this 
the large event that we did back in March, it, um, like Katie said, it took a, a lot of logistics to it. So um, once we had spent the night in Thompson, um, we loaded the dogs up and they flew from Thompson to Thunder Bay. And then in Thunder Bay, we had a, a team of two trailers with, uh, there was two drivers per trailer and they uh, then proceeded to, we had volunteers there in, in Thunder Bay that um, made sure everybody got out and got walked. And then they continued uh, via um, the roads and we had stops along the way in Sault Ste. Marie where the dogs were walked again, uh, then in Sudbury and then in Midlands. Um, so it was a long, it was a long process and, uh, but it's, it works, you know, it's, it's not always easy to make it all come together, but um, we probably had uh, a, about 10 to 15 different volunteers along the way helping us uh, throughout that journey. How many days did it take to uh, bring the animals over? They flew out of Thompson on the Sunday and they were in our care uh, by the Wednesday. And you flew up the Thursday before? Yeah. Yeah, so, so it was about a week, about a week from start to finish. Yeah, yeah. Right. So you guys must have been pretty tired when that was all done. <laughs> uh, you're yeah. running on so much adrenaline and love. Uh, yeah. You don't realize how tired you are until it's gone, and then you're ready to do the next one. And then the lockdown happened, and it kind of kiboshed all of our hopes and dreams. So, um, but we've right. been we've managed to do a couple more. We've done one in um, October. We did another one, which we had 33 um, pups and uh, adults come our way, and we also uh, managed to squeeze some cats in from Kenora, uh, Ontario. So we had 66 cats from there, plus a few from Manitoba. So. Um, even with COVID, we still managed to make things come together. And at the end of the day, it's it's about the animals and getting them um, into into Southern Ontario and helping them find homes. And, you know, these community members care about these dogs and they love these dogs. I, I get them reaching out to us quite frequently. And I know Katie is the same. They want to know how they're doing. Um, you know, it's not easy decision to give up your pet, but they know it's the right decision for that animal. So um, we try to provide updates where we can and um, hope that people will continue to reach out to us and give us updates so we can pass those along. Right. And I think that's the the biggest is that these um, people that live in these isolated areas, they do love their pets and uh, they do know the types of conditions that um, these animals are in and they're in, right? So, um, and they know the inevitable that if their dog stays in the community, it's most likely going to be shot. And, uh, it's a sad reality we have here, um, and these families are very thankful that we're there to help, and um, as well as the chief and councils, because it, it pr provides a more humane solution um, to the overpopulation of unwanted dogs in these areas, and it, um, it brings a, a very nice uh, feeling for these families, especially the kids, uh, that they live in a more educated and um, safe environment uh, where they can have a pet and they can have a healthy pet um, because it is emotionally draining to watch your animal suffer and ultimately die um, or be shot 
Um, so we like to provide that more humane solution, uh, but we couldn't do it without our partners down in Toronto. We're, we're completely saturated here, um, and uh, this network is, is super important to, to show some love to these areas, but then also, uh, you know, get good homes for, the, for these dogs down in Toronto. So now you've mentioned a couple of times about the dogs being shot. What, what would be the reason for them to be uh, shooting their dogs? Uh, it's usually not the owners that are shooting their own animals. Uh, the, this would be uh, hired help uh, that the, the chief and councils do to control the overpopulation. Uh, these isolated areas that don't have access to vet care, uh, nor do they have access to rescue resources, um, they once or twice a year, go around to the entire community and usually shoot every dog um, or every roaming dog without a collar. Obviously, there's different levels of the type of shooting that goes on, um, and we work towards um, no shooting at all, but we also understand that if there's no vet to humanely euthanize the animal, then um, if the dog is suffering, then it's a controlled shoot versus going around and mass shooting 60, 80, 100 dogs in a day. Um, that's just something that we're really trying to stop. Now, what size of an area are we talking about here when you say, like, because obviously this is, a, this is a difficult issue to control. Um, so how big of an area are we talking about here? So uh, every community is isolated. So let's say there's 30 that are fly-ins around Manitoba, northern Manitoba. Uh, the population of humans is anywhere from about 200 to about 5,000. So every community is different um, and the amount of dogs varies. So in some of the larger five or 2,000 to 5,000 population of people living on an island, let's say there's two or 300 homes, so a very small area, they can have up to 500 or more roaming loose adult large breed dogs roaming around their areas. Wow. So, so almost... they pack up on two, sometimes 20 or 30 of them get together when females are in heat and literally run down the community attacking other dogs because of territory issues or breaking the females back because you have 20 males trying to mount her. Uh, so it becomes quite um, dangerous for the children. Uh, and what happens is when the testosterone is high, these dogs are hungry, they hop on opportunity, and there's often children and adults that are bit. And in some of your worst cases, like last year, we had a, a young child that was um, mauled to death um, on the child's front porch. So wow. they, yeah, they need some sort of uh, dog control. And if that's something that they've been doing for years because they've never had anyone like us knock on their door and offer love and support. Um, you know, you have to wonder how hard it is, um, not only on the community, but the person that does the shooting. You know, like taking an eight-week-old healthy little baby puppy and shooting it is, it has to be emotionally draining for these people. And 
we come in with no judgment and love and support. And I let them know that there's an army behind me that is willing to support them and not judge them and provide them with what they need. And every single time they are absolutely ready for change. These people don't want to shoot their animals. They want healthy, happy pets. And that's what we strive for. What is the process like to get some veterinarians to some of these regions? And what about funding? Is there any funding for it? So let's say we have a small community, uh, it's a fly-in, there's 400 people in the community. We've been in there uh, four or five years now. I've had multiple clinics in the community. The chief and council started to put some bylaws in place, got all the strays out of there. They only have about 70 dogs in the community, and I would say 95% of them are spay and neutered. But now you have bylaw issues of dogs not being tied up. So that right. becomes, from a stray problem, it now becomes a bylaw problem. So chief and councils then have to then put in bylaws, but not only have bylaws, but someone to enforce them. So it all comes back to money of well, where's the funding come to, to be able to provide a job for these people. So that's where we come in and we kind of help these leaders find funding uh, either through their own um, money that's channeled through uh, their designated amount from the government through health and safety, um, or sometimes there is a dog control um, uh, budget, um, or we tap into outside resources, um, other grants, um, not only from other organizations like other SDCAs, but as well as um, Indigenous grants through the government. So, um, but again, every community is different. Every community takes time uh, to build relationships, to get strays out of there. Um, and then you need community support, right? So sometimes there's a little bit of resistance where it's hard to trust. It's hard to trust outsiders. It's hard to trust uh, you know, your average white person, because all they know is a troubled past. So it takes time to build relationships as an outsider to get this done. But yeah, ultimately, um, to go in multiple times a year for each community or to have some sort of remote program uh, where you have uh, it mimicked as how they work their health system. So it's uh, organized by a doctor, so it would be organized by a veterinarian, and then they would have a rotation of uh, vet techs in these areas uh, doing your basic care, like they have uh, nursing stations for humans, because these, these areas don't have hospitals either, so they work on remote as well as um, nursing care. So that's ideally for the future, short-term, but long-term future is to mimic um, and have a rotation of animal welfare consultants in the area to help provide uh, them what they need on a, on a more everyday basis. Wow. So what is the percentage, would you say, of strays versus an actual pet in somebody's home, these dogs? I would say in your communities that have zero access to vet care and zero access to rescues, you, and let's say there's 500 dogs in the community, you could have up to 400 of them are unwanted or there's somebody's dog that maybe moved away and they're not claimed. Like you have sometimes very, um, very limited in actually people who will claim the animals. It, it probably was somebody's pet uh, at one point, but to actually get them to admit to it is, and this is what I'm talking about in like the, the communities that have no access. There's quite a few communities now, like I've been doing this seven years, uh, quite a few of the communities now 
um, know about rescues. They have somebody in the community that knows someone in the dog world. Uh, it's becoming more uh, normalized in these areas, but there are some that are completely untouched. And I've stood on First Nation grounds and have met elders who have shook my hand and have said the entire time they have lived there, they have never, ever once seen a veterinarian in their community. And the smile is just, it, it warms my heart because they're thankful. So, so that's what kind of keeps us going. <laughs> that's That's amazing. I, I, <laughs> I love, I love dogs, but I, I have a, I, I would be afraid actually living in one of these communities that, you know, yeah. should run the risk of either getting bit or like you said, mauled from these yeah. dogs being starving and just, you know, yeah. they're almost, they almost become feral animals at that point. They are. And, uh, you know, and that's another thing is that um, lots of your listeners are probably thinking, I don't want one of these dogs. <laughs> you know, uh, these dogs are hopping on opportunity because they're desperate. Right. Uh, like humans, when we get desperate, we do desperate things. Uh, they rip into garbage, so that's a huge nuisance for these these people. Um, but you're right; it is absolutely scary um, to have one dog challenge you, a dog that's hungry, that's never lived inside and never has socialization. Not to mention twenty or thirty of them packing up around you. These people cannot walk to the store and grab their groceries because their groceries will literally be taken out of their hands. Their children cannot play outside safely. So anybody that's listening can even think about their front yard and their kid, you know, looking out the window and seeing their kids playing. Um, these families don't have that luxury. Uh, they have to keep their children inside and they're not able to play safely because exactly that. They fear these dogs, which is not what it should be. And one thing that when we're up there, uh, we talk to these kids and we try to teach them that, you know, you need to be kind to them and you can actually build a very nice relationship with a dog. And often we see these dog lovers that feel exactly the same way and they do everything they can from literally carrying their dogs on their backs when they go different places, because if not, their dog will be mauled by strays. So we have videos of like teenagers holding their huskies on their backs, walking through town. Wow. Like it's, they're resilient. The dogs are resilient and the people are resilient, but these dogs are very sweet. They are interested in you. And if you put a gentle hand out, they are, they're loving. And the ones that we rescue are the kind ones because anyone that is aggressive, unfortunately won't make it. Uh, those are the ones that will be targeted uh, first and foremost. Uh, so if you have a good relationship with community members, what happens is somebody will have a litter of puppies and they'll be eager to reach out to us uh, to get the puppies out of there, uh, knowing what will happen if they're left in the community. So it's, uh, it is, it's quite dangerous and, and it's, it's a, it's a very sad world. <laughs> Yeah, well, it's it is a sad world, but it's a a little bit of a breath of fresh air hearing the things that you're doing, and Tammy as well. You guys, are, you guys are rock stars, and we all appreciate it very much. 
Now, yeah, it's a, the, it's a collaborative, you know, and I, I think the biggest is that we, we do have to work together and, um, it's not, um, a First Nation problem. It's not a Manitoba problem. It, it is a Canadian problem. And, um, our echoes, our cries echo often in Northern Ontario, Northern, um, Saskatchewan, um, and, and throughout Canada. Right. And, um, but these kids deserve better, even if you don't look at it from a, um, a dog issue, it's a, it's a, a health and welfare, um, you know, health and safety for these kids. Cause I mean, even statistics, uh, children that live in first nation communities are 180 times more likely to be bit or mauled by a dog than a child living in an urban, an urban setting. So, um, so that's kind of a hard pill to swallow, you know? Yeah. What about, I, I know that the federal government doesn't do much as far as, uh, you know, animal welfare is concerned as far in funding. So like, have you guys reached out to any, is there any outlet for funding through the government at all? Um, so I think the biggest is that we tap into the government funding that's already allotted to these First Nation community. So there's a misconception that our taxes pay for these um, reservations, uh, which is actually false. Uh, this money is allotted um, back when the trees were signed. Uh, they use... Uh, the interest on the principal to fund these First Nation communities. Uh, so when we work with the leaders, what happens is when they put their budgets in, we include in their health and safety and sometimes even in their education um, and, um, dog control. Uh, so, you know, what will happen is they'll be able to help fund to bring these vets into these areas, which cost a lot of money. So an average clinic for spay and neuters, let's say two days, uh, 80 animals, it costs about $20,000. Flights alone are about $1,200. So if we split that up between um, fundraising, chief and council support by pulling from some of this funding, um, as well as the communities always pay a small portion. Um, if we do a collaborative of the nonprofits or the grassroots, um, as well as layering it on, uh, like I said, community support, uh, so owners paying a small portion, as well as this funding from the government, uh, we're, we're able to, to make it happen. Um, but um, I'm hoping when we continue to do this and do this on a little more large scale, um, especially now that I do this full time and we have extra people involved like Tammy and, and her crew, as well as the Ontario SPCA, you know, the SPCA international, like over the last year or two has really kind of picked up speed where I've had conversations that I've, uh, <laughs> I've only had in my dreams. So um, now to be able to provide more focused, um, I think there's a good opportunity um, because even within our um, provincial government, uh, we've had quite a bit of love and support um, from a few of the MLAs in our area, um, one being uh, an NDP leader named Nahani Fontaine, and she's Indigenous. She grew up on a First Nation community and has seen both ends of it, and she actually started a Manitoba pe- uh, petition for us uh, to implore the government to try and look at us a little bit more um, because it is swept under the rug. Um, there are multiple issues on First Nation communities, water issues, uh, medical needs, uh, housing issues, uh, education for the children. Like there's a lot going on in the lack of resources. And unfortunately, animal welfare does 
play a smaller role. Um, but when we can focus on the health and safety of the kids, um, then most people will turn a little bit farther when I start talking. Um, because as soon as they hear that I'm the dog lady, it's kind of like, okay, Katie, here's the dogs. You know, there's other issues going on. Um, right. but it does, it's a huge collaborative, right? So I think in the near future, more funding will be available. You put it into perspective about like the culture. There's a whole uh, whole thing happening aside from the animals, right? So, yeah, um, yeah it's fascinating. Now, the, when you when you do a transfer of let's say like the 33 dogs to Ontario, was it did those ones go straight to the Niagara SPCA, or was was they dispersed in various places? They came straight to the Niagara SPCA. Um, so we traveled to Thunder Bay and met Katie's team in Thunder Bay and transferred them into our vehicles and drove back uh, with them. So that's about a 17-hour um, drive for us from here to Thunder Bay and then turn around and come back. So Yeah. And then once you have the dogs at the facility, that's, that's a lot of dogs to be at one facility. So what, how do, what happens then? Like how, do, how does this all uh, unfold? Uh, well, Katie does a little bit of work on that, and um, when she's uh, having the dogs come in from the different communities, she's doing a little bit of triaging, uh, some um, deworming protocols have happened, vaccinations have happened, so when they arrive on our end, unless there's um, additional medical um, stuff to look at, they are kind of just, we allow them to decompress, because They've just traveled a long, long way. We've pulled them out of what they're familiar with and now they're into our shelter care. So um, we don't try to push a lot on them right from the start. As long as we have that vaccination, that first deworming on board, that's the main thing is just to make sure they're protected while they're in our care. And then we do a medical hold um, to make sure that everybody is good because things can, um, can come out from the stress of the travel. So we want to make sure that everybody's good and healthy before we even start looking at doing adoptions with them. Now, do you guys have any plans for uh, in the future? Like, do you have any scheduled uh, deliveries or anything? Like, give us an update on uh, what's, what's happening in the future. Oh, that's such a sad question. <laughs> oh, why? Um, our province is not doing well with COVID cases right now and our entire province is on lockdown on a red status. Um, so what I've been trying to do is just bring them in slowly um, and then keep them in foster care and then fly them out as well as arranging larger pulls uh, just because we need to make sure that our volunteers are staying safe um, right now. Um, but we always have stuff up our sleeves, right Tammy? So. Yeah. Um, you know, I think it's it's best uh, that we we just kind of just wait uh, wait this out a little bit and hope that we can get something in the near future. As well as the holidays are a weird time for adopting out. Um, so many people are you know in chaotic mode. Um, so we usually take this time to to fundraise. Um, and support the communities um, with vaccinations and deworming, collars, leashes, dog food, um, and just kind of start to taper off over the next um, two weeks or so um, and then let Christmas break. Not only that, um, but letting our volunteers take a little bit of a break um, and myself, um, you know, with some new additions here. So it's kind of nice just to... to 
support. So what we'll do is we'll bring some dogs in over the holidays. Um, and then once New Year happens, then we kind of get going again. So Now, how can people um, fund this initiative? I know I would like to donate simply because we got our dog through you guys. And I know you what you now I know what you guys have kind of went through to bring us these dogs. So um, how can people help fund it? Um, I mean, obviously, <laughs> in the most blunt way, opening your pop- pocketbooks are is mm-hmm. the the biggest thing. Uh, the flights are astronomical in prices. Uh, getting the dogs into Winnipeg, I pay about a dollar fifty two a pound. So, like, let's say about an eighty pound dog and a kennel, I'm paying about three hundred dollars um, plus the basic vetting that Tammy um, mentioned, as well as injuries that we have to cover um, from serious injuries. So donating money is obviously the biggest, but um, even if you can gather stuff um, and get it to Tammy at the, the Niagara SPCA, collars, leashes, kennels, uh, kennels are probably our biggest things, um, you know, dog items that we can kind of support uh, and get it up here. Uh, that's our biggest need. But honestly, it's awareness. It's um, I need the conversation in more homes um, around Canada. I, I need people to understand um, that we're desperate in Manitoba. This is, it's all we think about. It's so sad, the amount of unwanted animals um, and the owners that don't have access. So bringing it up to your family and your friends, sharing the posts. Um, and then the biggest thing is obviously adopting. Please adopt and choose to, to take time and patience to, to find your best friend and not look at what the dog looks like. Uh, that's probably a misconception that I um, have found when people are trying to find homes uh, is that the dog looks a certain way and they want it as opposed to getting to know the their story and, and finding out where these dogs come from and getting to know their personality and making that decision because that's what's most important is, uh, is recognizing that um, these dogs are very interbred and um, even... Uh, we hear from the the elders and the community members is that the the dogs that survive are the warriors. Uh, those are the strong genes. Um, out of let's say ten puppies that are born, maybe only two or three of them will survive, and those are the strongest. So when you do adopt a Manitoba dog, you're getting a warrior dog. So that's that's probably the best part of this. Yeah, uh, I, I, she may be a warrior, but she's also a digger. I'll tell you that. <laughs> Yeah, if I can just add a little bit to what Katie's saying there. And, um, you know, there's so much focus that happens on like Caribbean dogs and on the Asian dogs. When we have in our own backyards, um, this, like Katie was saying, it's not just in Manitoba, it's in Northern Ontario where we have calls that are happening in these communities on a regular basis, but the people of Canada and of Ontario are not talking about it. Like people are baffled when I tell them this is what happens in these communities because they have, they don't have a choice. They have no resources available to them and they're trying to protect their their community as best they can. So like Katie said, it's a conversation that needs to happen within our own country and, and focused on our own country. I think one of the things that we try to, um, Katie kind of touched on a little bit is people need to do their research and understand what it means to adopt a Northern dog um, because they've lived a different life than what we live here. So I think it's understanding what that means when you, when you're adopting a Northern dog into your home, especially the adults, you know, the, the, the pups, at least you can um, guide them and work with them. But um, 
especially the adults, because everything is new to them. The misconception with these northern dogs is that because they are very interbred and what happens is, um, you know, the they look one way, but their personalities are very different. So, and like Tammy said, they, um, they have sometimes have had very uh, rough upbringings um, in the beginning of their life, but they're very adaptable. And I would say 99% of them um, do find their way into to very loving homes. Um, so. And so when you say interbred, does that mean they could, they're a mixture of like four or five different dogs? Yeah. So, if you go back generations and generations, because they rapidly breed, um, you can, ha and I mean, obviously you have your types of dogs. Like I've got some communities that you go there and you're like, what has happened in this community? There are pugs mixed with St. Bernard's. There's <laughs> oh boy. pugs faces with shepherd bodies. Like you, you have this beautiful mixture uh, of these different breeds. Um, but yeah, often what they look like, they don't always follow their traits because a female that's roaming around loose can have five males per litter. So that's why you get this large spread of different puppies and you have very different personalities. Um, unless you have intentional breeding where somebody from the North has bought like two pointers or two labs or two something and are intentionally breeding, um, the, the loose breeding that happens, the majority of these animals, uh, these dogs are, are very much, uh, uh, interbred, uh, breed wise, not, and I don't mean that like moms are, um, mating with brothers. I mean, it does happen. Uh, but when you have multitude of, of dogs, you're, you see, uh, you see different breed types uh, versus um, deformities because if a dog has any sort of deformity or isn't strong immune system wise, uh, body wise, uh, then it'll just be snatched up by one of the other roaming dogs or will simply freeze to death in our Manitoba weather. What do you mean by snatched up? Uh, I mean other stray dogs taking baby puppies. Oh, like I see. Yeah, <laughs> got you. So, Sorry, yeah, very I, graphic. That's a, uh, no, hey. yeah, that's what often happens, and you'll see the mothers very panicky, uh, trying to keep her puppies safe um, because, again, dogs are hopping on opportunity, and they they will go in and take a whole litter um, if they're hungry enough. Wow. So I, I've yeah, never heard the term are very resourceful. They tend to find um, some hideaway spots to try to and keep those puppies safe. Like we, when I went with uh, Katie to the community, there was puppies that were underneath the house that we had to go down into like this manhole to, to get them out. And, you know, she tried to find the safest spot that she could have them. Yeah, they, they will dig under decks or sheds uh, somebody. And yeah, like Tammy said, we've taken off floorboards. Um, to get them out safe. Um, wow. And what happens is the mom will fit in there and feed them and they'll stay under there until they're about three and a half, four weeks old. And then you'll see them start to emerge um, basically like a wolf den and they'll start to come out for brief periods of time. Um, but it is difficult to catch them because as soon as you go close, they scurry right back in the little tiny hole. So, right. uh, you know, and it, it's sad because unfortunately, as soon as they come out, if they're stray dogs roaming around, then they're at risk um, 
for 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 that to happen. So the moms tend to stand stand on guard, but unfortunately they have to go look around the community for food. So these puppies are left um, alone often. So, so Tammy, how many how many trips have you made back and forth? Um, this year we've done uh, two, three. Three, three. <laughs> now, what was it like the first time getting out there? Did you have any idea what, did you, you know, think you knew what it was going to be like? Or when you got out there, were you, was it a whole different world for you? I've been to, um, I've uh, volunteered with uh, the spay-neuter task force in Alberta. So I had gone out for one of their spay-neuter clinics and gone into uh, a Hobima community is the name of the community that we went to. And so I got to see that, but where Katie took me, it's completely different than that even because we were so far north. Um, so it was, it was eye opening. It was rewarding. It's, it just drives my passion even more having gone to the community. So now when Katie talks to me about a dog from split, I know exactly where she's talking about because I've been there and I've seen the community and, um, you know, got and to met meet the people and, and experienced the culture. Yes. So that- have you guys done any filming or anything? Have you guys captured any of this to uh, like on a large scale of, you know, trying to present, not really a documentary, but try and present uh, it in a way that it really sheds light on what's happening and the issues that are going on over there? Uh, well, we haven't specifically, but Canine Advocates, uh, if anybody has Amazon Prime, go to Prime TV and watch Fostering Hope. That's a wonderful documentary. Jasmine Colucci and her crew, they our front line and that is rescue that is a perfect uh a perfect uh world of seeing the the raw reality of what um but we do have some news crew we had a really mm-hmm. awesome news crew follow us uh back in february um but yeah i mean it's it's difficult because it's a, there's a fine line of showing the raw reality because you get a lot of people that um that are negative and that it's really hard to filter out uh, racism and negativity and um so uh, you know to be honest with you i sometimes am apprehensive about showing it but then i quickly am reminded that there are wonderful people that support us and wonderful people that support these uh first nation communities that um that need to see it and that want to see it um because they do want to help and um, mm-hmm. You know, but it is, it's, it's emotional. This is, is not easy to do. And I can't imagine living it every day. And then you have these um, Northern community members that are known as the dog people in the community. And those are the people that we latch on to, um, whether it be the kids, there's a couple of uh, teenagers that uh, we're very, very close with like Ben up in split and Tammy knows who Ben is and uh, mm-hmm. Shanika. And there's, there's a couple of them and there's lots of, of people that live there that want to see change. And they're the ones that message me and they find freezing puppies that are outside in minus 40 and bring them back to their house and immediately message me. Um, so, so it, it, it becomes a, a larger thing than uh, us just hustling. Right. Wow, lots to ingest. I think I could talk to you guys for hours and hours about this. Um, And I think the biggest thing is that you think it's one thing and then living it is is so much different when you see the footage. And I encourage everyone to... to practice empathy and mm-hmm. to watch the videos and to see it, uh, you know, firsthand if you can, uh, because it does put a new spin on how privileged we are, um, how much access we have, um, whether it's 
inaffordable for for someone, you still have access. Uh, you mm-hmm. know, and you can fundraise, you can save your money, you can do those things. Um, but if you don't have access, it, it becomes um, a little bit of a different story. So it's it's hard. It's a sad a sad way we live in. But I think change is happening. It has to. There there's too many good people around the canine advocates they do equally amazing stuff in manitoba and uh, we work alongside them and they do great things and that that documentary is uh is quite um quite breathtaking at times you know but but it's you see a a lot of the reality of what it is so for for donating where can they go Is, is is it right on the websites each website or what uh, yeah, our Facebook page, uh, definitely e-transfer is the best way or PayPal to save a dog network at gmail.com. I always let everyone know that our organization specifically is not charity status. So if you're looking for a tax receipt, I always say to touch base with the Niagara SPCA and uh, make your donation there because obviously that helps us. Um, but if you're looking to directly support our group, Save a Dog Network, then uh, e-transfers or PayPal Um, as well as anybody can contact us directly and uh, get our vet info. And you can call in with your credit card directly to our emergency vet account that um, is currently at about $4,000. So um, uh, that's kind of the best way to do it. Okay. Yeah. And And we we have, um, we have some things on our site as well. So we, um, have a program where you can actually sponsor a kilometer for us to make our next journey to uh, Thunder Bay to help more dogs. So there's that program that's always running. Uh, we have our flight buddy sponsorship right now with COVID. Our flight buddies are are not happening, but um, during normal times, uh, that is also an option and it's a way to support uh, the Niagara SPCA, but also supports Katie and what she's doing and, able, and enabling her to continue to have dogs come our way. Well, that's amazing. And again, I thank you guys for doing all this. And then if there's anything we can do to help as far as like fundraising, or if you guys have anything that we can help share a post and, you know, get out there, I'll be happy to do that. Yeah, I love it. I love that you guys are giving this platform um, to us and um, educating the public about, you know, safety and and what it takes to actually get a, a proper dog. Um, I think it's super important and needed and keep up the conversation because I think that's the only way we're going to tackle this. I agree. And I really hope that you guys will keep me posted and keep me in the loop. And then uh, hopefully we can share some more of your stories going forward and, and all the happy endings uh, that you There's guys are so providing for families. Endings. It's wonderful. <laughs> Yeah, I agree. So thank you guys so much. Awesome. Thank you. Bye. Bye, Mark. Thank you. Please visit the Save a Dog Network and the Niagara SPCA Facebook pages for more information and to learn about the amazing things they are doing. If you're looking to add a dog to your household, please consider adopting. There are plenty of animals available through shelters and rescues that need loving homes.